スロットンシュremember this storage closet tucked away in the living room of the apartment I grew up in. It was stacked floor to ceiling with boxes. This was like 1985-86. I was four years old and my parents didn't want me going in there because it was probably unsafe, but there was a box in there that constantly piqued my interest. It had a machine and a bunch of cables and I didn't know what it was, but it kind of looked like a VCR. It was a little more aerodynamic than that. And it looked like it was made of wood and plastic and had like silver switches, like something out of Star Wars. My dad told me that it was an Atari 2600. I didn't know what that was, but I wondered why it was in the closet. You know, why, why weren't we using it? And he said that he wanted to give it away to the Salvation Army. He just didn't use it anymore. So I bugged him for a while, you know, until he finally gave in and plugged it in and showed me how it worked. And I remember like the first game that I saw was combat. It's like these little tanks going around shooting each other. And I just remember the colors and sounds on the screen was like nothing I'd ever seen before. I marveled at the fact that it was like TV, but he was controlling the action with this little paddle. It was like a stick and a single button. And that just blew my mind uh, as a four-year-old, you know? And I asked him, can we keep it? And, you know, I don't remember the reason, but it just seemed like he just didn't feel like we needed it anymore. So, shortly after, he'd ended up donating it to charity. And of course, part of me was bummed, but I wasn't that attached to it because I never really got a chance to play it. And I didn't realize at that time, as a four-year-old, that when I was born, at the end of 82, the game market was basically crashing. And folks were giving away their Atari 2600s. They were giving them away to charity or putting them in a garage sale, putting them in the attic or in the basement or in a storage closet. And by the time 85, 86 rolled around, the market had started to rebound with the NES, but I wasn't really aware of that uh, because I wasn't in school yet. Uh, We didn't have one, you know, so it was just beyond my scope at the time. And, And so while that Atari 2600 was really my first interaction with video games and it definitely was something that got my interest going it was really the arcades that really reached me when it came to video games And I grew up in Reno, Nevada, which is a casino town. And when you grow up in a casino town, a lot of the arcades are actually in casinos. In the late 80s and 90s, there was this push by casinos to really attract families. So they'd set themselves up as resorts. And while all the slot machines and table games were downstairs, you know, they'd need something for the whole family because kids can't gamble. So they'd have these large arcades, you know, maybe they'd have some bowling or mini golf, maybe some pools. 
so it's hard to talk about arcades in Reno without mentioning casinos. And when I was growing up, probably between the ages of four and six, my dad worked at the MGM in Reno, and that eventually became Bally's, and then later the Hilton and the Grand Sierra. But when it was Bally's, this is the same Bally's that made slot machines and video games and pinball, and they eventually would merge with Midway. And my dad was a baker there. You know, he made pastries. Um, but he would take me to work, and he'd kind of show me, you know, this is where I work, and he'd bring me to the arcade. And that's kind of the next place that I would really just completely fall in love with video games. So Bally's had this huge arcade, probably one of the biggest in Reno. And I remember over the years, it just kept getting better and better as they added more and more. But in the mid 80s, when I first was introduced to it, it was pretty standard stuff. It was all of the old classic games like Galaxian and Pac-Man and Space Invaders and Star Wars the Arcade with those early vector graphics. Then as time went on, they would expand and become the Hilton eventually, and they had a huge bowling alley. And they had those virtual golf driving ranges, you know, where you hit the ball against the screen. Um, they had this giant Galaxian theater where like six people would sit behind these huge guns and you'd have like a mission briefing and it was like $5 to play. I remember the laser tag and the table hockey and the skee ball and everything in between. And I'm getting ahead of myself and we're, we're jumping ahead several years, but many of the Sega games that I fell in love with like Top Skater and Crazy Taxi, I would originally play at that casino. So growing up in Reno, Nevada over the years, I'd formed many great arcade memories that had an impact on me like the first time that I saw Virtua Fighter at the Peppermill Arcade and I just marveled at the 3D polygonal graphics I'd never seen anything like that before yes I'd seen games like hard driving and stuff but this was fluid 60 frames per second 3D it was a shocker not to mention Sega Rally Championship with that ride on cabinet it was amazing and there was also the Atlantis Casino they had a huge arcade Lots of classic Sega games that I experienced for the first time, including things like Virtua Fighter 3 and 4, Sega Bass Fishing, Star Wars Trilogy, and even the Initial D series. The little driver's license card that you got, you get to keep it and then use it the next time. So I think that's one of the unique things about having grown up in a casino town. It wasn't all casinos. Actually, one of my earliest arcade memories was going to the dentist. My older sister, my little brother and I, we would get so hyped to go to the dentist because our children's dentist office had a little arcade in the waiting area. And I mean, we would rush in there and try to hop on the original Mario Brothers machine or they had Donkey Kong 3, you know, where you're shooting the gorilla up into the beehive and they also had asteroids. It was amazing, you know? It was free play, so we would just never want to leave. So that's one of the things that kind of softened the blow of having to go to the dentist, but I also remember movie theaters were a big deal growing up in the mid-90s. Every movie theater had an arcade, whether it was the upscale theaters or the cheap theaters, you know? You'd have this tiny little 
alcove tucked away where you'd waste time before your movie showing. And some of my best arcade memories are from movie theaters. You know, I remember in 1989 seeing this game called Stun Runner, which was a futuristic 3D polygonal racer. It was way ahead of its time and like nothing I'd seen up to that point. I remember going to the cheap theaters. We called them the B theaters, and that's where movies were kind of held over for an extended period of time and tickets were cheap. The theater smelled like old carpet and stale popcorn, but I remember seeing virtual racing there for the first time. This large, full-size ride-on cabinet with the flash-shaded polygonal graphics and the four VR modes was insane. And I also remember seeing Dragon's Lair for the first time and marveling at the full-motion, hand-drawn animation and that Dolby sound that was so loud you could hear it all the way down the hallway. And later, Daytona USA with the four cabinets chained together and those textured polygon graphics, 60 frames per second. That was a marvel to behold. And you know, now that I think about it, the cheap theater actually had some really good video games. I also remember going to Starlight Bowl, which is this bowling alley over by my grandma's house. We'd go with my family, and I always remember my little brother and I, we would bowl our frames in a hurry, and then we'd run off to the arcade to go look at the attract mode of games like Afterburner 2 or Space Harrier, or even that gyroscopic ride-on version of Galaxy Force 2. You know, and we didn't have any money most of the time, so we were just staring at the attract mode. But every once in a while, We'd get lucky and our parents would give us a quarter or two and we'd try to make it last as long as we could. Of course, then they'd yell our names and we'd have to come running back and bowl our frames in a hurry and then zip on back to the arcade. Whenever summer would roll around, we'd go to places like Magic Carpet Golf or Wild Island Water Park, you know, where you play a couple rounds of mini golf, ride on the go-karts and, and then you go to the arcade. And my mom would have her company picnic at Wild Island every year. So my brother and I would get these wristbands and we'd be able to ride as many go-karts and play as many arcade games as we wanted to. I remember playing games like Outrun and Golden Axe and even later stuff like San Francisco Rush and Cruising USA. But one of my absolute favorite arcades that I remember was at Kingskate, which was our local roller skating rink. I used to really enjoy going roller skating in the 90s with my family. It was a thing, you know, and their arcade was just really this long gallery along the side of the roller skating rink. Just several arcade cabinets bathed in that glow-in-the-dark black light and disco ball sparkle. You had the carpets that were really tacky. They looked like confetti. And my brother and I, we used to play games like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the arcade, the Simpsons Arcade, Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat 2. Usually it was older kids playing those machines, but every once in a while we got lucky and we got a turn on it. I remember one summer they were showing the entire Star Wars trilogy, the original trilogy, over at the snack bar. And we'd watch Star Wars and then we'd go skate for a little while and then we'd go play some arcade games and then we'd come back and watch more Star Wars. And that was an awesome memory growing up. So I was born at the very end of 1982, and it would be years until I would experience video games in my home. So arcades were really just the foundation of my love for video games. And it wouldn't be until 1991 that we would get a video game console in our home. And I remember that so vividly. 
it was November of 1991, and it was my sister's birthday, and nobody was expecting this. I certainly wasn't. She opens up her biggest present, and it's a Nintendo Entertainment System. And I will tell you, I've never been more jealous of a sibling than I was at that moment. <laughs> because, you know, up until this point, I had basically been shouting from the mountaintops that I like video games. I am interested in video games. And here was my sister who hadn't really shown any interest. She was getting an NES. And to make matters worse, or more funny, if you will, we had a family friend at the party who was talking to my dad, and he was like, have you heard about the 16-bit Genesis? Uh, you know, it's a lot better than the NES, you know. He's like, they just started packing in Sonic the Hedgehog as a free game, you know, with the, with the Genesis, and, and it's cheaper now. So my dad was like, Jess, don't play it. Box it back up. We're going to get you a Genesis instead, which was an upgrade, obviously. So then I was even more jealous. <laughs> but, you know, sibling rivalry aside, I think my dad knew that we would all just play it together and have fun. So it was a good call, and, and we really did have fun with that Genesis. In fact, I remember my sister unboxing the Genesis, and I was just in shock and awe as she unboxed this jet black console that looked like a piece of stereo equipment. You know, it looked like something that kids shouldn't be playing with because it was too expensive, right? But here we were unboxing this amazing high-definition graphics console with stereo sound and little volume rocker that you could go up and down and the little flaps on the top where the cart goes in. Everything about this build of this machine was amazing. Of course, they call it the Mega Drive over in Japan and, and Europe. I didn't know that back then. It was just the genesis to me growing up. But, I mean, it was really an amazing console and it had really sharp graphics and really crisp audio like nothing I'd ever seen. And when we fired up Sonic for the first time, it was just as impressive as any 2D game that I'd played in the arcade. Honestly, it moved incredibly quick. The colors were super saturated. The tunes were super memorable, whether it be you know, Green Hill Zone or Spring Yard Zone, Starlight Zone, Labyrinth Zone. I've memorized all those to this day, and they're kicking around in my brain. I just can't get them out. So we totally ate up the hype of blast processing, and uh, were completely floored by this console. And... Of course, later we would get games like Streets of Rage 2, Disney's Aladdin, Jurassic Park, Castle of Illusion starring Mickey Mouse, one of my favorites, Sonic 2, Sonic 3, Sonic and Knuckles, you know, with that cart that you could lock on on the top, which blew my mind as a kid. Even later into its life, we would get games like Vector Man, Vector Man 2, and even Sonic 3D Blast. And we loved Sonic so much in our house that we even had games like Sonic Spinball and Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine. And I even have fond memories of watching the Sonic the Hedgehog cartoon on Saturday mornings with my brother and sister growing up. So the Genesis was an amazing console, and I have many, many great memories of it. But still, it wasn't my console. It was my sister's. Uh, my brother and I probably played it more than she did, if I'm being honest, but it still didn't belong to me. And so I still kind of hoped that I would one day get a gaming device that actually belonged to me, that was just my own. I do remember around that same time having a friend in first grade named Sean and he had a strange console in his house. He didn't have an NES. He didn't have a Genesis. He had this other console that I'd never heard of before called the Master System. And according to him, this thing came out before the Genesis, you know, and it was by Sega. 
I had never heard of a master system before, but I did make the connection with Space Harrier, you know, because I would come over to his house and we would play Space Harrier. And I remember seeing Space Harrier in the arcade. Of course, it was a much better version in the arcade, but I mean, it was still serviceable and I loved that game. And you couldn't play it on the Genesis that I recall. So, you know, I would go over to Sean's house just to play Space Harrier on this very bizarre system that he had called the Master System. Come to think of it, Sean was kind of a strange kid. He didn't have many friends, but, you know, I was his friend and, and I did enjoy going to his house and hanging out and playing the Master System. And that's pretty much the only exposure I had to that console and have had to this day. Probably need to do something about that. So, my birthday rolled around in December of 1991, and I was turning nine years old, and I remember I was not expecting what I got for that birthday. I don't even remember asking for it, but I do remember being shocked when I unwrapped a Game Boy. I remember the box, you know, with the glowing hands and the beams of light shooting out, and it looked very futuristic, and inside it came packed with a little pair of headphones, and you also got a copy of Tetris which was an amazing game. And in fact, it was so amazing, even my mom liked it. Like, everybody liked Tetris, I think. It was just one of those games that you'd have to be a really sad person to not enjoy Tetris. But um, I also remember getting the original Super Mario Land on the Game Boy, and that was really my first experience with Mario outside of, you know, playing the original Mario Brothers in the dentist office. Then it was around this time that I had a friend in third grade named Anthony, and he was a huge Mario fan, you know, had the NES, had games like, you know, Mario, Mario 2, Super Mario Brothers 3, which was huge, but I kind of missed it, you know, because we were a Genesis household. I would go over to his house for sleepovers, and we would watch movies and play games, and I remember he was so into Mario, he had posters all over his walls, he had Trapper Keeper with Mario on it. He had a subscription to Nintendo Power Magazine, and he would just try to get me into Mario as well. He's like, you got to get into these characters in this kingdom. It's so amazing, you know. And as an artist, I was always drawing, and he used to beg me to draw him pictures of, like, Mario and Luigi and Lakitu and Blooper. And it was really through the artwork of Yoichi Kotabe that I became familiar with the Mario characters and universe and came to love them over time and fell in love with that clean and wholesome Nintendo aesthetic. Later that summer, there was a friend of my dad's who had a Game Boy and he was getting rid of it because he wanted to upgrade to a Game Gear. I remember my dad made a deal with him for several games, like a huge stack of games for real cheap. And I had just this giant stack of Game Boy games to enjoy on road trips and stuff. It was great. And I do remember playing my Game Boy in the back of my parents' minivan when we would go on trips to the beach or camping. I remember even playing it in the dark. I had the Light Boy, this giant magnifying screen that would shine on the Game Boy so you could see it in the dark. And there'd be something like Alanis Morissette or Hootie and the Blowfish playing on the radio. And I'd just be playing my Game Boy. It's funny, music always seeps in and gets tangled up with my memories like that. I also remember my grandma getting me Super Mario Land 2, the six golden coins, 
And that was a big game for me. That was one that I had asked for, I had begged for, and I got it. And that was literally the first game that I ever beat from beginning to end. It took me a while, but I did it. And uh, I have a lot of great memories of that. But the Game Boy was still not the same thing as a console. You know, I mean, I loved having it and I loved taking it everywhere, but it wasn't the same thing as having a full-blown console. And at that time, the Super Nintendo had been out and the hype was real. I mean, every kid I knew, including myself, wanted a Super Nintendo. And I would go over to friends' houses and play Super Mario World. And, you know, even though the Genesis was a 16-bit console and it had tons of great games, for whatever reason, I just had to have a Super Nintendo. It really wasn't better, but we perceived it as better because it was new. And I just begged my parents for a Super Nintendo, but it was a big ticket item, so it was going to have to wait for birthday or Christmas. So Christmas of 92 rolls around, and my birthday's in December as well. And while my parents were kind of hesitant to get me another game device, especially one that was so expensive, I was kind of able to, you know, combine the power of birthday and Christmas together, where you basically say, it'll be my Christmas and my birthday present in one, you know? And so I had begged for it, I knew it was coming, and Christmas of 92, I woke up and I opened a Super Nintendo of my very own. And of course it came with the pack-in Super Mario World, which I was so hyped to get and play. And also my dad gave me this other game that I didn't really know anything about, and it was called The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past. You know, I hadn't asked for this game. I didn't even know about this game. And I looked at the back of the box and I kind of read the synopsis and I looked at the manual and I really did enjoy the artwork in the manual, but it didn't really look like my kind of game. I mean, I was into platformers, you know, where you'd jump on platforms and get power-ups or brawlers where you beat up the bad guy and you team up with your brother. This seemed like a long quest that required serious dedication. And You know, looking back on it, I can see exactly why my dad got it, because it's my dad's kind of game, you know? But I was just really looking forward to Super Mario World, so that's what I played for months, and Zelda just kind of sat there and didn't get played until the buzz about this game kept building and building, and I'd hear about it on the playground, and I'd hear kids in my classroom talking about it, and I was like, well, wait, they're talking about a game that I have, and I've, I've owned for a while, and I just haven't played. So, you know, got the game out and plugged it in, and started playing it and of course that opening intro sequence is a bit long and overdrawn for a kid who just wants to get right into the action but i soon discovered that once i got my sword and once i started getting a feel for the game that it really opened up this new world to me that was just so vast and even when i turned off the machine i came back to it my game was saved and i could pick up from where i left off and I really fell in love with Link to the Past and have loved every Zelda game ever since. And it was that same game, Link to the Past, that got my uncle into gaming. He had come over a couple times and watched us play Link to the Past and he got hooked. And so he got himself a Super Nintendo with Zelda Link to the Past. 
and he became just this crazy speed runner of this game. I mean, he used to tape himself on VHS playing through this game. I think he probably beat that game over a hundred times, maybe even more. It was ridiculous. And beyond that, he would introduce me to games like Shadowrun and ActRaiser and Super Metroid on the SNES, all games which I have loved and still love to this day. And I kid you not, my uncle's over 70 years old and he's still a hardcore gamer to this day, all because of Link to the Past. So one of my favorite games on the Super Nintendo would be the first game that I had to save up and buy with my own money, and that's Super Mario Kart. You see, I needed that game so bad, I wanted it so bad, but it wasn't anywhere near my birthday or Christmas. So, I mean, I had to take out the trash for weeks and weeks in order to save up like $40, which still wasn't enough to buy a retail copy, but I was able to get it used at Game Force in Reno, Nevada. That was my local used game store, which I would end up going there a lot over the years. I remember my parents driving me to go get the game with $40 cash in my pocket. It was all singles and change, and we went to Game Force, and I plunked down my money on the counter, and I got Super Mario Kart. And then I read the manual on the drive home and couldn't wait to play it. And I remember playing those courses over and over and over again until I finally mastered them and earned gold on each cup and finally unlocked Rainbow Road, which was this mythical track, you know, <laughs> to a kid like me. It was epic. And then also I remember playing the battle mode with my little brother, and that was loads of fun as well. So the next big SNES game for me, probably the biggest ever, it would have to be Star Fox. You know, I started hearing about this game in February of 93, and we saw trailers for it. It was very hyped, and, and all that hype surrounded this add-on chip, the Super FX chip. Normally, I think Nintendo would throw add-on chips in carts, and you wouldn't really know about it, but they really marketed this chip, you know, and to a kid, that was like something I just had to have. And for the first time, the Super Nintendo was going to be able to do polygon graphics like I'd seen in previous games like Stun Runner I mentioned or Virtual Racing in the arcade. And I do realize that consoles had been able to do crude 3D graphics before this, but I mean this really represented like the first really playable game, you know, it was a first party title and you could just tell that it was going to be something special. Every kid I knew at school wanted it. So I begged my parents for this game, but it was like an $80 game because of that FX chip. So it was going to have to wait until my birthday. And so I waited patiently until December of 1993, and I finally got Star Fox for my birthday. And I played the heck out of that game. I beat that game multiple, multiple times. And it was that game that really gave me a taste for 3D graphics and wanting more games like that. That feeling of movement in three dimensions. around this same time that something interesting started happening in the video game industry. This was between 92 and 93. 
You see, Sega and Nintendo had been going head-to-head for years. And they'd finally leveled the playing field between the two of them. And it had become a very competitive market. And there was this arms race to 3D. You know, we had seen it in the arcades, and now we were starting to see it in the home. And there was just this rush to outdo each other on graphics. You know, you'd start seeing games that weren't even really 3D, but they kind of looked 3D because they were rendered in 3D. And then those 3D renders were turned into sprites. So you had this, what was essentially digitized 3D sprites. To a kid, you know, we would take it any way we could get it. I mean, 3D was really the next big thing and computer graphics were all the rage. You learned to recognize names like Silicon Graphics, you know, SGI, you know, whether it was from watching films like Jurassic Park or playing games like Donkey Kong Country. That technology was being used and 3D was the wave of the future and you didn't want to be left behind. And because Sega had knocked Nintendo down a few pegs and leveled the playing field and the market was more competitive, as I said, it left room for other players to come in and stake their claim in the industry. And to a kid my age, growing up in the grunge era, a lot of it came across as noise and confusion. Honestly, up to that point, I had only known two game companies, Nintendo and Sega. And so it was pretty easy to parse new information as it came across. But as my little brother and I would read gaming magazines from the newsstands, we would start to see new names that we didn't recognize, you know, like the NEC Turbo Graphics, the Atari Jaguar, the Sega CD, the Sega CDX, the JVC XI, the Sega 32X, the Panasonic 3DO, the Philips CDI, the Nintendo Virtual Boy. I could keep going, but Let's just say that it was information overload to a kid my age. Not to mention the fact that most of these devices were over $300, which I couldn't afford, not having a job. And I would have to ask for, for Christmases or birthdays. And it wasn't like my parents were going to be plunking down that kind of money for any of these. So yes, it was a very competitive and open market at that time, but it was also a whirlwind of information to a younger kid. It's possible that a lot of these were intended for older, you know, teenagers and adults, but even us kids got caught up in the whirlwind, and I like to call it the Wild West of gaming, because that's really what it felt like. It was a wild and exciting time in gaming history where it felt like anything could happen. So I think I really just chose to be blissfully ignorant about a lot of this stuff for a while. My parents got me a subscription to Nintendo Power, and I just kind of tuned out of most of that stuff and tuned into the SNES and getting the most out of that system for a while. And, you know, I remember we used to go to our local Blockbuster, and they used to have these huge cardboard discount bins with old, previously rented SNES and Genesis carts. I seem to remember the SNES carts wrapped in these blue cardboard boxes where you could see the front of the artwork and the Genesis carts were wrapped in red cardboard boxes and so you'd have the blue bin and the red bin. Since we had both a Genesis and an SNES, we'd pretty much pick up discount games for both of these consoles well into 94, 95. 
Donkey Kong Country, Donkey Kong Country 2, Killer Instinct on the SNES side. And then on the Genesis side, you had stuff like Sonic 3D Blast and Vector Man, you know, those late games that really pushed those 3D digitized graphics, you know. It kind of kept those consoles alive a bit longer than they would have and long enough for them to transition into the next console generation. So throughout 1994, I was pretty much focusing exclusively on my Super Nintendo. We weren't really playing the Genesis that much anymore, and I, I guess you could say that I'd become a bit of a Nintendo fanboy, what with the Nintendo Power subscription and just eating up whatever advertising Nintendo was pushing my way. But there was something that happened mid-94 that really forced me to pay more attention to Sega in general, and that was when I saw Daytona USA for the first time. And I remember just being floored by this machine. I think that it was at the cheap theaters that we were at. Though it could have been at one of the big casinos like Atlantis, they had them too. But you couldn't miss this arcade when you walked into the room because it was this giant cluster of four different cockpits strung together with this huge pink marquee and the stock cars on the front that said Daytona USA. And I remember the seats were this bright red color. And it was blasting this soundtrack from Takanobu Mitsuyoshi just with these huge CRT monitors, too. I can't understate what a presence this machine had back then. And the graphics were light years ahead of anything else I'd seen. It wasn't just the polygonal graphics like Virtua Fighter or Virtua Racing that we'd seen before, but it was textured polygons. And it was moving 60 frames per second. It was lightning fast. You get behind the wheel and it just felt so realistic. You know, that machine was just one of the most memorable arcade moments of my childhood. And we didn't always get to play it because it was kind of pricey. I think it was like a dollar, dollar twenty-five for play, and I wasn't that good to begin with, so you know, I'd waste that dollar twenty-five pretty quick. But just watching other folks play it who were really good and just marveling at the attract mode. I really loved Daytona USA in the arcades and I always hoped that I would see this game come home to a console. But I knew that it wasn't going to be on my Super Nintendo. And I knew that it, it couldn't be on the Super Nintendo even if they tried. Because the Super Nintendo just couldn't do this. It could hardly do Star Fox. And you know I rented games like Stunt Race FX in 1994 that was also a 3D polygonal racer on the SNES, but I'd pretty much been spoiled because after seeing Daytona USA, it's so hard to go back to something like Star Fox or even Stunt Race FX. It moves at such a snail's pace and it's this tiny postage stamp of a display versus the huge CRT that you got in the arcade with Daytona. I mean, it was clear that home consoles still had a long way to go to catch up to the arcades, and I knew that, but didn't make it any easier going back and playing some of those games on the Super Nintendo, whether it be digitized 3D sprites in Donkey Kong Country or flat-shaded polygons in Star Fox and Stunt Race FX. It was kind of bittersweet. You know, after seeing something like Daytona, 
you want to look to the future and whatever the next big thing is. There really was no going back at this point. Textured 3D graphics were the future. So it was actually kind of ironic that despite 3D being the future and me having a hard time going back to the SNES and a lot of those games, my brother's birthday rolled around September 94 and he was feeling a little left out. He didn't have a game console of his own and uh, my dad actually got him for his birthday an NES. It was a used NES though. So we were going backwards here. I was excited though. It was old enough that I was like, I had never really experienced the NES, never really played a lot of its games. And, you know, my dad gave him this huge box with an NES and just a heap of games to play day one. I would argue that's almost better than unboxing a brand new console, you know, is just being able to play a ton of games day one. And we had a blast, my brother and I, going back and playing all those games, including, you know, the original Super Mario Brothers and Mario Brothers 2, basically Doki Doki Panic, and Super Mario Brothers 3, of course, which was phenomenal and reminded me very much of Super Mario World, the precursor, and it was fantastic. We played Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the original one. It was frustratingly difficult, and I always choose Donnie because he's got the bow staff. There was Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the arcade, which is a really nice and faithful representation of what we had already enjoyed in the arcade. Not nearly as good looking, but the gameplay was there and my brother and I loved that little brawler. And you know, stuff like Tetris, of course. Tetris on the NES was really fun. I was already used to Tetris on the Game Boy, but we really enjoyed playing it on the NES. And I have a lot of great memories playing that NES at a time when, you know, everybody was looking forward to the future of gaming, you know, 32-bit and 3D polygons. And we kind of just took some time to look back and it was like a time capsule of the years that I missed. And you know, I was afraid that my little brother might feel bad that he was getting this old cast-off console. Being the youngest, he usually did get hand-me-downs, you know, clothes and toys. And thought he might feel bad, but actually he didn't at all. The NES was really a great console. And you know, a lot of those games, they held up. You know, while they were maybe lacking in graphics by comparison, the gameplay was there and the fun two-player action, you know, of games like Duck Hunt, which we played together, just gave us endless hours of entertainment. And arguably, he had more games to play on that NES than my sister or I did on our 16-bit consoles. So I feel like my little brother's NES really taught me the value of going back and looking at older consoles and that, you know, it's not just the graphics that make the game. Before that, you know, I was really focused purely on the next big thing and I really learned that it's rewarding to go back and experience older consoles and see what they had to offer and here I am still at it even today. And it was also around this time that I learned that not every vision of the future is necessarily a good one. You know, I remember in August of 95, walking into our Toys R Us. We only had one in Reno, but it was a big one. And I remember seeing this 
new game console that was much hyped and much anticipated. It had been hyped on Saturday morning cartoons, on commercials. It had been hyped in the Nintendo Power magazine that I subscribed to. And this was the Virtual Boy. What was it, really? Was it a console? Was it a handheld? It was kind of somewhere in the middle. It was this large face mask, kind of like a pair of red goggles. And it sat on top of a tripod, and you used a conventional controller. Kind of looked a little weird because it had D-pads on both sides, but essentially it was mimicking the 3D VR headsets that we'd seen, you know, in movies and at amusement parks and large arcades. Yet you couldn't really wear it on your head. You basically had to hold your face up to the rubber goggles of this device and peer in through these mirrors at what was essentially red wireframe graphics. Now it did use a stereoscopic 3D effect, but to me, as a kid, I mean, this seemed like a downgrade to what I was already used to on my SNES with games like Star Fox and Stunt Race FX. Those, while they didn't play any kind of tricks on my eyes, they looked more 3D and more immersive than these Virtual Boy games did, and honestly, me and my little brother were not sold. We understood that it was kind of like this cool new thing that a lot of kids wanted, and so maybe it might have been like a status symbol to get this for your birthday and show it off or brag about it on the playground. But at the end of the day, it was kind of like the power glove, you know? It just seemed like another one of Nintendo's gimmicks. I knew this kid, Bobby, in second grade who had a power glove. And everybody thought he was so cool because his parents got him a power glove. And at the time, they were pretty pricey in addition to the cost of a Nintendo and the games. Of course, there was the movie The Wizard, which really pushed the idea of somehow gaining an advantage through using the power glove, which kids who got it or got their hands on it eventually realized that that wasn't the case. And I remember Bobby bringing his power glove to school and playing tetherball with it and ultimately breaking it, which is a funny memory. But yeah, I don't recommend that you play tetherball with your power glove. There's really no advantage there. So yeah, I think that kids really knew that the Virtual Boy wasn't the answer to the future of 3D graphics at home or, or the future of video games for that matter. But that doesn't mean that the future of video games hadn't arrived. In fact, during this time, summer of 95, 32-bit gaming was already out there and I just didn't know about it. because I was really just tuned into you know, Nintendo Power, the fact that I was really tuning out all the rest because I found it to be information overload. Yeah, I wasn't really paying attention at that time to some of the new consoles that were being hyped or advertised outside of Nintendo. And so I remember it came as a bit of a surprise to me when I went into my local electronics boutique in the mall, fall of 95, and they had this brand new 32-bit game console on display that completely caught me off guard. This short, squat, gray rectangle of a console called the PlayStation. 
And I remember the first thing I wanted to know, and I asked the store clerk was, will this system get a port of Daytona USA? Or will it ever be able to play Daytona USA? And I remember him telling me that, no, in fact, there was another console called the Sega Saturn that did have a copy of Daytona USA on it, but that it wasn't very good and that the console didn't have a lot of great games and that I really should check out this PlayStation. Now take a spin on Ridge Racer and Jet Moto and see what I thought. And they were fast and fun racing games and, you know, quite impressive. Uh, to be honest, this was really my first experience playing a 32-bit console and, you know, both of those games impressed straight away. And I also remember a few other games on the demo CD being equally impressive. So from never having seen or played a 32-bit console before, I didn't really have much to compare it to. And while I had had my heart set on finding a console that could play Daytona USA at home, you know, my dad and I both found the sales pitch to be pretty compelling. I mean, when you consider that the PlayStation was right there and we were able to play it and see it. I mean, I had never even heard of a Sega Saturn before he mentioned it to me. And, you know, that just speaks to how poor Sega's marketing was back then. I mean, to some degree, I was tuning things out, but I didn't hear about the Sega Saturn. I didn't hear about it on TV or in magazines. I didn't hear about it from friends. It had been out since March of 95. This was fall of 95, and I completely had no idea that it even existed. I never saw it at Toys R Us or at Electronics Boutique or at Walden Software or at Walmart or Kmart. I never saw it any of those places. When I was looking at the Virtual Boy summer of 95, it wasn't there. I imagine I would have seen it. I would have noticed if there was this new console, especially one that could play Daytona USA. But it just flew so low under the radar that here I was, fall of 95, faced with the opportunity to get a new next generation console. And PlayStation stood there unopposed. And honestly, Saturn was just this thing that I was hearing about for the first time from somebody who, whether biased or not, was not putting it in a good light. So, you know, my dad and I left with a PlayStation that day. And in fact, I'll never forget this, but we actually went back home and boxed up my Super Nintendo and all of my games and brought it back to the mall to Electronics Boutique and traded them in for a PlayStation and one game. And that's a decision that I kind of regret to this day. Subsequently, I was able to get my Super Nintendo back and reclaim a lot of those old games. But I mean, in hindsight, there's no way that it's worth that. As a kid, I just, you know, saw everything a little differently. And I think I just got caught up in the appeal of a brand new 32-bit console. But be that as it may, we still took that PlayStation home and we got tons of enjoyment out of that thing. I mean, starting with games like Tomb Raider and Jet Moto and Ridge Racer and Gran Turismo and later Final Fantasy VII and Chrono Cross and many, many others. 
you know, it was a great console and I really do have good memories playing PlayStation with my dad and my brother. And really it was the PlayStation that got my dad back into gaming, you know, got him interested. Because before that, you know, he really wouldn't play Genesis or the Super Nintendo that much. Those were really just for us kids. But there was something about the PlayStation that really got to him. And, you know, he really got interested in mostly RPGs on the PlayStation. Now, I think it was really my dad's love of RPGs that got me into RPGs in the first place. And it was around this time that my dad had gone back on the road as a musician. You know, for many years, he was off the road and he was doing pastries at the casino. And, you know, that wasn't working out at some point. And he went back on the road playing drums in different bands. And he would often be away for a week or two weeks at a time, you know, living out of hotel rooms, doing the musician thing, right? As such, you know, he needed something to entertain himself in the hotel rooms. And so oftentimes he would take the PlayStation with him you know, on the road. And while we did still have the Genesis and my brother's NES at home, the PlayStation was really the center attraction, you know, and the, the console that we all wanted to play, you know, because it had all the new games. And so, you know, whenever my dad would take it on the road, I would be reminded of the fact that I really felt like I needed to get a console of my own, something that didn't go out on the road and something that I could keep in my bedroom and I could just explore and play for myself. Something that was unique to me, something that felt like an extension of my own identity, I guess. So, you know, I... I had been a big Nintendo fan up to that point, and I had my Nintendo Power subscription, and I had loved my SNES, despite trading it in for PlayStation. I figured the logical conclusion would just be to set my sights on Nintendo, and at that time there was a lot of hype about this new Nintendo hardware that was going to be coming out called the Ultra 64. It, while it wasn't out yet, we were able to see games on the hardware in the arcade, games like Cruising USA and Killer Instinct 2 that ran on this Ultra 64 hardware. You know, of course, it would be hyped up in magazines and trade publications. And, you know, this was going to be a true 64-bit console. None of that do-the-math stuff that Atari tried to pull with the Jaguar. It was legit 64-bit. And that was the clincher. It got a lot of people excited about the prospect of a 64-bit Mario game. And so it was finally released in Japan that summer of 96 and I would start seeing in the magazines pictures of this thing and I noticed they changed the name to the Nintendo 64 and the controller looked kind of weird it was this trident three-pronged thing and I just couldn't figure out how I would use that because I don't have three hands but it still really intrigued me not to mention the fact that the console itself had a really sleek and ergonomic design kind of harkening back to like the classic cars of the 50s uh, instead of the really industrial, you know, square and boxy 80s design that you had with the NES or even the Super NES, they really kind of channeled this organic look with the Nintendo 64's design. And when it finally hit the U.S. in the fall of 96, Mario 64 was the most hyped game there had ever been up to that point. And I remember going to places like the mall 
and Toys R Us during that fall of 96, and there would be these Nintendo 64 kiosks in the electronics boutique and in the Toys R Us, and there was always a long line of kids waiting to play. So every time that we went, I never really got a chance to play it. You know, I'd stand on the side and watch some other kid play Mario 64, but you really had to be committed and wait for a long time if you wanted a chance on the machine, you know? That said, I was really impressed watching other kids play the game and just seeing how fluidly Mario could be controlled. I noticed that none of them were really using the left side of the controller. They were all using that center stick, which was this thin analog joystick that looked like, you know, a miniaturization of what you would see in an arcade. And it allowed them to do backflips and handstands and climb trees and run around and turn on a dime in this 3D garden area outside the castle and swimming in the water and all that stuff, you know, we take for granted today. But back then, there literally was nothing like this that had come before. That kind of freedom of movement and 3D control was mind-blowing. It really was leaps ahead of anything we'd seen before that. And I pretty much made up my mind, you know, right then and there that I was going to save up my money and, and try to get a Nintendo 64. I started doing some odd jobs here and there and slowly saving up my money and working towards this goal of getting a Nintendo 64. And when Christmas of 96 rolled around, I remember my parents and I and my little brother, we all went to the mall and they were doing some Christmas shopping and I told my folks that I was just going to be at Electronics Boutique. That's where they could find me. <laughs> there was this long line, of course, of kids waiting to play Mario 64 on that same kiosk. Came out in September of 96, and here in December, there was still a long line of kids waiting to play this game. And so I got in line with my little brother, and we just stood there. Each kid got something like 10 minutes on the machine, and there were like 15 kids waiting to play. So... We waited and we joked and talked about video games and looked at some of the things on the shelves. And as I moved up in line, I noticed something on my left behind the glass display case on this tiny little CRT that was demoing a game that I had actually seen before subconsciously, but never really took the time to stop and pay attention to what it was. There was this little purple jester-looking character. He had a funny hat that looked like a court jester, and he was flying. And he was doing loop-de-loops and all sorts of aerial acrobatics. And the level was this dark and mysterious, lush green-looking forest area. And he was flying through these cascading orange rings, which I guess were racking up points or something. And I mean, the game in motion was like almost trance-inducing. It was the most bizarre thing that I'd ever seen in a video game, yet it was really appealing. I thought to myself, what is this game? I know I've seen this before, but I never stopped to pay attention to it. It's always just kind of been there in my peripheral vision, and I've always been laser-focused on something else. 
like the PlayStation or the Nintendo 64. And if you haven't already guessed, we're talking about Nights into Dreams. So I looked over and I noticed that this game was running on a different machine, a dark black machine, and it had the word Sega on it. And it was that moment that I made the connection in my mind and I said, this is it. This is the Sega Saturn. This is that console that the sales clerk a year ago told me was no good. And as I stood there watching this demo loop in motion, I started thinking, this is the machine that can play Daytona USA at home. And I love that game. And this is the machine that has this amazing looking game that I can't even begin to describe, but I want to play this game. And at that moment, all of my plans for getting a Nintendo 64 just crumbled away. My 14-year-old brain was incredibly conflicted at that moment, and I just had no desire to stay in that line anymore. I told my brother, I'm ditching this line, and he came with me. And I said, I need to find out more about this console. I think this might be the console for me. So I started asking friends around school and a lot of kids didn't know about it or weren't really aware of it. And I asked the guy at the used game store, Game Force, you know, and he told me that he had one hooked up and I could try it out. It just hadn't been as much of a success as the PlayStation or the Nintendo 64. And so I found out that it was really struggling to keep up in the market and for many reasons that I didn't really understand back then it was a distant third place and you know I think that made me want to support it all the more just that underdog feeling where there was this great console that had gone completely underappreciated by so many people and I recognize that greatness and I see potential there and when he told me that it had been discounted multiple times in order to remain competitive now, I realized that it was going to be the most affordable option for me and easily my best chance at getting a new console on my very meager budget, you know, not having a real job. And I knew that if I could get my brother and I to save up money and do enough jobs, we could pool together our funds and get this console and enjoy it together. And that's exactly what we did. You know, we took out the trash, helped with the laundry, cleaned the bathroom, leveraged some birthday money, pulled it all together, and bought a used Sega Saturn and one game in early 97. So my brother and I went over to Game Force after school, and we gave the guy our money. It was like $80, basically, for a used Saturn. It had not been selling that well on the new market, much less the used market. So we got the console and Daytona USA for 80 bucks, and... The guy, you know, put the console and all the cables and a couple controllers just into a shopping bag. That that was my first Saturn. It was just a 
console and cables in a shopping bag. We took it home and we fired up Daytona USA. And, you know, immediately we noticed the fact that there was, you know, quite a bit of a downgrade in terms of graphic fidelity compared to the arcade. And we noticed that there was this draw in, you know, where the polygons in the distance would kind of just appear out of nowhere. We also noticed a really low frame rate. Um, it was definitely noticeable back then, not just today, you know. But we stuck with it and we played the game. And the more we played the game, the more fun we had just drifting through those courses and unlocking the horse and listening to the remix tunes by Takenoma Mitsuyoshi. So much about that game we enjoyed and I still enjoy to this day. And, uh, you know, despite its obvious flaws, it's a really great fun arcade port to the Saturn that I absolutely love and enjoy to this day. So it had taken my brother and I so long to save up to buy this console in one game and now we had zero funds and we didn't know how we were going to continue to support the console and and get new games it was at this time that i really realized i was gonna have to get a job but in the meantime one thing that we did realize is that we could check out games from the library believe it or not our local library had sega saturn games in their system so we would go down to the library and we would place a hold on basically every game that they had in their system and have it transferred to our local branch. And that is how we experienced many of the Saturn's games early on before I got a job. I remember renting games like Croc, Legend of the Gobos, and Panzer Dragoon 2, Zvi, and Myst from the library. And of course, the library didn't always have everything that we wanted to play. You know, sometimes our parents would rent us a game from the video rental store. But for the most part, it was those library games that we would check out multiple times, you know, and they wouldn't cost us a penny. So, you know, we would just keep renewing the checkout and continue to play the games until we beat them or, or we're done with them, you know. And the funny thing is, I don't seem to remember anyone else putting holds on those games you know we didn't really have any competition because uh, I was one of the few kids in Reno that seemed to have a Saturn I literally didn't know anybody else that had one and it was just me and my brother delving into this system and enjoying it you know and my dad would come into our bedroom sometimes and he'd say you know what are you playing that looks weird or oh that's interesting you know well I'm glad you guys are having fun but I don't think he saw any appeal in that console. And that was fine with me because this was my console and this was my act of rebellion, I guess you could say, as a young teenager was to go in a completely different direction and choose the competing console opposite of what my dad was into at the time. So, you know, my brother and I were enjoying the Saturn as much as we could on little to no budget at all. 
and you know for the most part it was great you know but uh, there was this game Nights into Dreams of course which was a large part of the reason why I got this console and it was like a 60 to 70 dollar game I seem to remember because it came with this special controller this 3d analog control pad that would allow you to move knights fluidly and perform a lot of these aerial acrobatics that were central to the game so I tried to convince my little brother to go in with me on knights like he had done before with the Saturn and there were other things at the time that he was interested in and probably other things he wanted to spend the very little money that he had on so it was really just gonna be all me this time I was on my own this time around and while I did my best to scrape the money together to get this game I knew that I was going to finally have to go get a job and the first job that I applied for was a uh, working at Sears in the mall I just applied for whatever job they would give me but they ended up putting me downstairs in the watch and jewelry department of all places and I actually had to wear a suit uh, and I was only 15 years old so that was kind of weird um, but yeah you know my dad I fit his suit and he let me wear it and I couldn't even drive at the time so my sister had to drop me off to work and I'd sell watches and it was kind of a hustle you know working on commission but I got my first check and I was super proud you know when I looked at it and it wasn't that much, I don't remember how much it was, but probably was making seven or eight dollars an hour back then. But it was enough to go get Nights Into Dreams. And in fact, it was such a strange feeling, you know, having that first job and getting these paychecks and not having any other real financial responsibilities. So I had this disposable income all of a sudden that empowered me to get all sorts of things you know I'm sure a lot of folks can relate to that feeling and that was really the beginning of me in the workforce you know for better or worse at the young age of 15 I started working and I really never stopped be it for things that I wanted or eventually things that I needed obligations I would just continue to work and I worked through high school and I worked through college and I had a lot of good times though and a lot of interesting jobs and met a lot of neat people through work. Anyway, so I had joined the workforce and now I was making money and I was finally able to buy more games for this console and that's exactly what I did. So that first paycheck, like I said, I got Nights Into Dreams and I remember just everything from picking up the game from Electronics Boutique to unboxing it right there in the mall. I couldn't wait to get it home I just had to open it up and check out this brand new controller it was bizarre looking it shaped like a, a circular orb but it felt really good in the hands and it had this interesting analog stick which was very different from what I was familiar with with the Nintendo 64 but I got the game home and I put it in my Saturn and fired it up and 
was greeted with the Sonic Team logo and immediately the music just made such a big impression with that opening intro cinematic and even the gameplay you know the music throughout this game is phenomenal and it's one of the things that I love the most about this game and the gameplay you know was different it was so different than anything I'd ever played and it took a while to get used to but the feeling of the controls was excellent with that 3d control pad and after time and practice, I got better and better at this game and I started to really fall in love with not just the aesthetics and the music of the game, but the gameplay as well. And to this day, Nights Into Dreams is tied for my favorite game of all time. And the other game is also a Sonic Team game that I'll end up talking about. But uh, Nights Into Dreams is really a special game to me. remember it was at this point that my brother kind of started to lose interest it seemed in the Saturn not only was he not as taken with nights into dreams as I was but it was at this time that a good friend of his had a Nintendo 64 and several games and yet he had never played the NES and its game library before and of course my brother had an NES and he had a box full of games so they kind of did a swap. I guess it was like a long-term borrow where they just basically swapped consoles and my brother was given the opportunity to play the Nintendo 64 and several of its games and his friend was able to experience the NES and all of its games and that was the first time we had had a Nintendo 64 in our household. Of course, I'd played it with friends before uh, sleepovers and events but I mean, having it in the house and being able to play, you know, GoldenEye for long sessions or Smash Brothers and things like that, it was a lot of fun and it was definitely a completely different flavor from, you know, Saturn or PlayStation. So it was really at that point that my brother, you know, went his own way with the Nintendo 64 and I was left with the Saturn. And I did my best to support that console, you know, buy games for it throughout 97, but you know, things weren't looking really good for the Saturn towards the end of 97. I already knew Sega was in third place behind Nintendo and Sony, but things really started looking bad when I went into my local game shops like Electronics Boutique and even Game Force. And I would just start to see fewer and fewer Saturn games, and the ones that were there were just relegated to the back of the store, on the bottom of a shelf, you know? Really tucked away, because they just weren't selling. And it was kind of like it was caught in a feedback loop, because since they were tucked away, people weren't really seeing the games on the shelves, and they weren't being reminded of the fact that Saturn was a competitor as well, and it had new games coming out for it still, and... I just feel like it never really got a fair shake. You know, I remember at the very back of my electronics boutique in the mall, they had that one single shelf on the side wall of whatever Saturn stuff they had. And I mean, it had dwindled down to a few peripherals, maybe a console. I don't even remember if they were selling consoles at that point. And, you know, a few shelves of games, 
just on that back wall and there was a copy of enemy zero that turned up somewhere in early 97 and this was a, like a 70 or 80 dollar game somewhere in that neighborhood it was four discs and it was heavy when you picked it up you could tell that it was more substantial than a typical game so it was one that not really knowing whether it was going to be a great game I didn't know if I wanted to spend that kind of money on it so you know I asked my dad and my uncle for that game and I wasn't sure if it would still be there by the time my birthday and Christmas rolled around but lo and behold that game sat there throughout 1997 on that shelf until my birthday rolled around at the end of the year and my uncle got me that game you know, he went to the mall he found it I told him where it would be he said it was exactly where I told him it was and you know my little brother and I played that game all night we stayed up and played it in the dark you know really close up to the monitor and you know limited saves and the, the whole you know not being able to see the enemy it scared us out of our minds but uh, it was an awesome survival horror experience and it's a really cool idea for a game and you know even though it was a bit tough at times and you know we really had to stick with it to beat it it was a rewarding experience for sure and one, one of my favorite games on the console you know, I also remember that same Christmas, my dad got me a copy of Myst, which was actually one of the earliest release games for the Saturn, and, and one that I had rented from the library before, but never really sunk that much time into just because of how it plays. It's such a slow-paced game, and it took me a while to get into it, but I actually played that copy of Myst and beat it on the Saturn, and that was my first experience of Myst. And I love that game, and I played it subsequent times on the Saturn and finished it. And for being such a common game, it's one of my favorite games on the Saturn, just because of the memories I have playing through that with my brother. And it still plays great to this day. No driver's issues or compatibility mode required. Just fire it up and enjoy. So even with Saturn's popularity all but completely diminished by the end of 97 in the West, I was still there very much in support of the console and, and very much seeking information about the console anywhere I could get it and, you know, picking up games on the cheap where I could and, you know, paying attention to what stock stores were going to have in. And... I remember at that time I was walking to Barnes & Noble with my brother. This was still before I could drive and it was relatively close so we could walk there together and they had this huge magazine section and there was even an import section where they you know, had import magazines from overseas and one thing I loved was going there and reading the official Sega Saturn magazine that they had over in the UK and we would get on import there had been a, an official Sega magazine in the U.S. during the Genesis era called Sega Visions. This was like a newsletter, kind of like Nintendo Power, but something that Sega put out. And we had nothing like that during the Saturn era. But luckily, you know, the folks in the U.K. were just really committed fans. And you had a couple of magazines actually out of the U.K. 
uh, both official Sega Saturn magazine and Saturn Power. Now, I was never able to get my hands on Saturn Power. It wasn't imported by my local bookstore, but once I took notice that there was a Saturn magazine that I could get on import, I really started relying on that for all of my information and news. And it was expensive. It was not cheap. It was about $10 an issue, but you know, it was worth it to me. So I used to go to Barnes and Noble and sit down and read the official Sega Saturn magazine. And I just remember sometime in early 98, May or June, I opened an issue and found out that, that Sega was working on a new console and that they were also going to be wrapping things up on Saturn and, and we weren't going to see support for the console in the West. And you know, that was a really bittersweet pill to swallow. I mean, I was excited at the prospect of a new console, a new Sega console, and from what I was reading, it was going to be great, but it had been a crazy year where I just dove into this console full on and it was coming to an end. I got there late, you know, uh, I admit, I was late to the Saturn. I wasn't there in 95 or 96, you know, I mean, I found out about it at the end of 96 and it was just too late. I mean, it's like I'd arrived to the party and folks were already cleaning up and turning out the lights. I was a Saturn fan now, do or die, and I was determined not to let any of this change that. So I started picking up games you know, wherever I could. Some stores started clearancing and discounting Saturn games to get them out. I'd find them in bargain bins. Some of my local game shops would only have one or two Saturn games, but I just figured they were meant for me, you know? And, you know, looking back on that time, as a Saturn fan in 97 and 98, it was just such a lonely existence as a gamer, you know? I mean, I don't mean to sound like overly dramatic or sad about it, but it was a lonely road to walk, you know? There was really nobody to share it with. That's the thing that's kind of bittersweet, you know, because on one hand, the games were amazing, the console had its own unique personality, and I absolutely loved it, but at the same time, there really wasn't anybody to share it with. And while my little brother stuck with me as long as he could, you know, even he became interested in other things. And, you know, while it was so easy to find folks who could share in locker conversations about PlayStation or Nintendo 64, and you could go over to friends' houses and easily find one of those consoles plugged in, the Saturn was just basically my own thing, for better or worse. And I remember that year that Sega was off the market. There were no new Saturn games coming out, and Dreamcast hadn't come yet. It felt like an eternity to me. It was a really long time to wait for Sega to return to doing what they do best. You know, making really creative inventive, risk-taking games. And I've got stories about that as well that I'd love to share at some point. You know, honestly, 
the fifth console generation you know, with the Saturn, PlayStation, and Nintendo 64 really stands as my favorite console generation of all time. I mean, I have so many great memories attached to that console generation and that period in time. And as sad as it might sound to have been a Saturn fan, it really is part of what defined my identity at that time as a gamer. And it's awesome because there's a lot of memories that I can share with folks these days. And through the wonders of the internet, we can reach out across great distance and see that there are a lot of other folks that share the same kind of experiences. And it's because of that that I continue to meet so many amazing people and create new memories that I know I'll take with me and look back on fondly as I move on into the future. <laughs>